Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to From Under the Rubble on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure, as always. Today's subject is civil disobedience, and for any of you in the United States who've been paying attention lately, there seems to be a lot of this going on. Um, now, Dr. Fleming, unfortunately, in a lot of these news stories, part of the story is the question of free speech and democracy, and um, without maybe going down the rabbit hole of free speech or democracy, um, when we're looking at the construct of a so-called constitutional government in the United States, are these protests justifiable? No, I don't think so at all. Um, if we just look at uh, the American Constitution, which is always cited, well, you know, people have the right to free speech, they have the right to take their clothes off in a strip club, they have, you know, you could do just about anything under that false understanding. But we know what the American Revolution was about. We know the historical circumstances by which the English were shutting down newspapers and uh, denying the right to, to make a public speech about, uh, in a political contest. In particular, they were worried about the right, the Americans and, uh, and some of the English were worried about the right of petition. If you petitioned Parliament, for example, Parliament had the right not only to refuse to read your petition, but to lock you up for uh, having insulted uh, the integrity of Parliament by implying that they needed your advice. So the, the Bill of Rights was written to protect those clear, uh, undisputable parts of a functioning, any kind of government, including a constitutional monarchy, has to have mechanisms by which people can discuss and debate political issues. Uh, this doesn't mean that they can break laws regarding property and public order. So the whole, the whole notion that, that somehow you get to turn cars over and attack the police and disrupt public meetings, um, not, nothing could be more preposterous than to say that that's even hinted at. Uh, of course, that was, uh, the Constitution was written before anybody discovered there was a right to privacy that allowed women to murder their babies. So uh, I, <laughs> we've come a long way with the Constitution. I'm not sure we can use it very much anymore. Right, and I suppose it's the whole challenge of the bill, the idea of the Bill of Rights. In some ways, it could have been earlier reframed as, you know, a list of responsibilities or a, a, a bill preventing abuses. Uh, but uh, we're so diluted, we're so far away from that now that uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to conceive of that. We are. It's something which, uh, I've, I've, there's, a, there's a, a black nationalist law professor at Yale who actually has let the cat out of the bag. I think his name is Akil Reed. And he says, uh, he says, well, let's face it, the truth is the Bill of Rights is written to protect the rights of states and communities. It really has very little to do with individuals. Now, I mean, this is a monstrous thing to say today when everybody, everybody thinks the Bill of Rights is all about, uh, you know, my, 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 my right to uh, express myself by putting graffiti onto somebody's private property. But uh, the fact is that, yes, that's why the Tenth Amendment is put in, uh, which uh, guarantees the rights of the states and the people. It's collective rights, it's community rights, especially in the states that, that it's designed for, and therefore it, has, it really has nothing to do with, you might call, what the French would, would have called the rights of man, 
uh, or uh, modern people, you know, call international human rights. The nice thing about the Bill of Rights is it's a, it addresses a series of very concrete and specific historical abuses, and it's trying to prevent the federal government from repeating those mistakes. It was never meant to empower the federal government to interfere in local communities. It's, suppo- it's supposed to prevent that. And, of course, everything is that we live in an upside-down world, where the Bill of Rights turns out to be now an instrument of oppression against us. But we're talking about the real Constitution now and not, uh, not uh, the Constitution as being written, rewritten by the Supreme Court. Right. I want to get a little bit more specific before we, we look at more generally. So we are talking about protests within a constitutional government. Now we're talking about protests in 2016 as related to Donald Trump. So some might, you know, question what's dr fleming's agenda in this is he uh is he really secretly supporting trump does he not like these uh illegal immigrant protesters uh what what's your beef dr fleming yes well uh to to be uh quite fair um I would say that I, I am fond of Donald Trump. I love I love clowns. Everybody loves a clown, <laughs> and uh, and so he's been a very uh, a very entertaining political figure. And I think it's important that today that um, you know the, that Americans do that Americans who are very disgruntled with the way their government works or the way their government treats them. You know that they have that Trump uh, voting for Trump or campaigning for Trump is a way of expressing that, but really that's a side issue. I I believe that if you have a strong political conviction, you know, for example, I very much believe that uh, our federal system, as originally designed, uh, was an expression of how Americans really lived. It's an expression of how medieval Christians really lived. It's described by Thomas Aquinas uh, and uh, going back to Aristotle, and it's uh, and it's affirmed in the in the political philosophy of the great Calvinist Althusius. In other words, it's what Catholics call s- subsidiarity. I believe that if you believe in that principle, then it cuts both ways. And that, for example, if you think the Constitution doesn't give the uh, the federal government the right to interfere in various things like uh, like uh, abortion legislation or doesn't get to overturn local ordinances on who gets to marry whom well then the same thing is true of gun rights every every nothing is exempt and so i believe the same thing if we're talking about principles not only of constitutional order but of civil order in general then uh, whether the whether it cuts in your favor the, uh, your, the the favor of your political party or movement of your friends or cuts against them. You have to stand, you should stand by the principle if it really is a principle. And because if you find that you can't really stand by it, then what you're dealing with is just a weapon to serve your interests. It's just rhetoric and propaganda. So I would maintain this principle for people, for uh, people who are supporters of Bernie Sanders as much as I would maintain it for people who are supporters of Donald Trump or Ted Cruz. So to to follow you down this line, Dr. Fleming, people who are praying in an abortion clinic, what happens when the cops come up and say, you've got to go, you can't, you can't be here on this sidewalk? Um, what, in what the about- first place, the, in almost every, um, almost every state and city in America, if you are given an order by the police, 
you're, you're supposed to obey it, whether, whether you think it's a legal or just order, because the police are there for, for uh, your protection and for public order. If you think they've uh, overreacted, then you have to sue them or you, 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 you take them to court. Uh, you certainly, if they say, look, the law says you can't stand within so many feet of this property, you can't block entrance to it, well, then that is the law, and you have to obey the law. And uh, there is, in my reading of the scriptures and of the tradition and the church fathers, there is absolutely no justification for the idea that you would break a good law, that is a law designed to protect property, uh, because you have a higher law in mind. It's, uh, I think it's, uh, it's been something that's been made up out of nothing by atheist writers like uh, Thoreau and Gandhi. It's not part of our tradition. So, so your your Catholic who's praying there at the abortion clinic when when the cop says you know you need to move back, uh, he doesn't get to say well I, the law on abortion isn't an ordinance of reason promulgated by the proper authority for the common good. Ergo, I'm not going to move back you know this many feet. So you're saying that exactly you, you can't use the higher law to justify breaking the lower law. No, exactly. It's what you know. Saint Paul says famously in one of his uh, one of his uh, epistles. He says, uh, what? Should I do evil that good may come of it? I mean, this is a fundamental moral principle for Christians and even for conscientious pagans. You can't... Suppose I wanted to promote... English custom in America. I'm tired of seeing us go third world and introduce all this foreign stuff. We need to revive English customs. I'm going to set the way by driving on the left side of the highway. Well, see, I just don't have that right because it is, uh, it is disruptive and dangerous. If you are going to live within a community, you're going to pay your taxes, vote, uh, serve in the military, you have, if, if, if that's required, you have certain obligations whether you like them or not. When, uh, as a young foolish man, I was constantly complaining about the Vietnam War to my father and uh, and he said, well, you know, if you're going to live in a country, you accept laws. You know, the uh, the, the uh, alternative is to go into exile. And the, the crude redneck expression, you know, love it or leave it, yeah. is uh, uh, if, it, if, if, lo- if loving it means obeying the laws of the commonwealth within, you, within which you live, I think that's a reasonable position to take. You don't have to love everything about your country. You might hate many things about it, but you do have to abide by the laws. Now, so positive commandment telling you to do evil, that's quite different. You know, if it tells you you have to marry your brother or abort your baby or there are many or, or worship Baal, those that's different. But we're but we're not we're not that's not what uh, that's not what these protesters at Trump rallies, nobody's making them do anything. Mm. Well, I told you we would get more specific before we would get more general, and I want to point out that, and I'm sure because uh, Garrett and I are not far apart in age, he heard this too, but I, in school, I was taught that, that Gandhi and Martin Luther King were great heroes specifically for civil disobedience. We were told to read Thoreau's essay on this, and yes. this was seen as a, a great virtue. And I'm sure our listeners, if you've met Dr. Fleming, you've, you've often experienced the same thing where we have a received idea, Dr. Fleming says something incredibly shocking, and then you have to start adjusting 
and and trying to understand where he's coming from. I think this was the feeling I had the first time that Dr. Fleming called the Kennedys um, Irish shanty trash. And uh, I had to start uh, examining what my ideas about the Kennedys really were. So um, for any of our listeners who may find themselves in the same position, I did the first time I heard you talk about these things. What what do we think about you know, the, the sit-ins at, at the lunch counters, uh, freedom rides, uh, walking to the, uh, the sea for salt. Um, what, what do we, not only as inheritors of a Christian patrimony, but uh, going, uh, going back to antiquity and, and inheritors of a classical tradition, what do we, how do we look at civil disobedience? So now we're stepping away from this idea of a constitutional construct. Right. right. The, um, in my first book, uh, The uh, Politics of Human Nature, uh, if you, it's funny, the, the, the guy who did the index was a clever, uh, clever uh, young Ph.D., and it, if you, it says uh, it's civil disobedience, and it says, uh, and instead of giving a page number, it says, see treason. <laughs> because civil disobedience says that your understanding of moral principles takes precedence over the legal system and constitutional system by which your country operates. Well, if you, where, do you, where do you get this idea? You know, for example, where did, uh, where did Henry David Thoreau in his famous essay on dis- civil disobedience, was Thoreau a Christian? Did he, did he say, you know, I, 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 get, I deduce this from Scripture or tradition? No, he didn't, he didn't believe. He was maybe, to the extent he could read the Hindu and Buddhist texts in translation, he sort of believed that, but they certainly wouldn't give him anything. No, it was a very much an 18th century idea about, about freedom of expression. It's the kind of thing Voltaire might say, except Voltaire would have said, in the end, you have to obey the law. So the, the, this tradition, Voltaire, Gandhi, and uh, Martin Luther King, none of these people, so far as I can tell, believed in or practiced Christianity. Now, I know that Dr. King, if I can use, I use doctor in quotation marks, since he plagiarized, plagiarized his dissertation, he did not deserve uh, to, or he did not earn his degree. But uh, King was a Marxist, not a Christian. And uh, he was always surrounded in his career by other Marxists and members, in fact, of the Communist Party, not simply Marxists. So we're dealing with an ideological principle that's used to undermine the social order. And none of its practice, and in the case of Gandhi, he was a revolutionary. Now, you could say, I approve of his revolution, and I'm glad it took place. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the methods he used, or that any revolutionary uses, are, are justifiable. You know, in a war, of course, th- everything gets sort of put on the table. You get to kill people, you get to burn houses, you get to rob, you get to do all sorts of things. Uh, and so if you're saying that civil, civil diso- in, act- in an act of civil disobedience, in a lunch counter sit-in, for example, and I may be the only person you know who ever took part in these acts, Stephen, because I was involved in the civil rights movement as a college student. Mm. That to break uh, to break a good law because you think there are other laws that, that, that have to change or other moral principles that take precedence, you're, it's a revolutionary act against the society and commonwealth in which you live. And the, if I were in charge of the government, I would treat these people as insurgents. And, um, and including my, myself at the age of 18. 
Hmm. Well, and those people no, are I would have. like insur- insurgents, right? So you got the you have the fire hose, you have the you have the dogs, you have you have all of that sort of thing going on. So you would say yeah. that that was a proper way to deal with it. Um, I would say that uh, the smart people in smart states dealt with it more intelligently than that. Uh, Bull Connor in uh, in Alabama just attracted negative attention, and though his the, the behavior of the cops in some of these cities was repudiated by decent white people, even those who may have been willing to perpetuate uh, segregation, but thought that that's no way to treat your fellow human being. In South Carolina, where uh, where I lived, we uh, my view was that if you appealed to the conscience of the community, that the community would change its rules. And this, in fact, happened. So, uh, for example, in Mississippi, I mean, this is sort of a distraction, but to me it's interesting. In Mississippi, they brought in uh, James Meredith, who was not a qualified student, and they forced him into Ole Miss. This was a bad thing to do. In South Carolina, they looked around, and there was a kid named Harvey Gant. And Gant was an architectural student, but he, there was no separate but equal college facility in South Carolina. Clemson was the top for this kind of thing. So he insisted that as a qualified student that he be given access to Clemson. Uh, the governor, liberal Democrat Fritz Hollings, and met with uh, the opposition, and they wink, wink, nod, nod. Everybody got along, and they pushed it through. And step by step, you know, uh, things changed rather rapidly without having to have the federal troops sent in. And that's the smart way to do it. I mean, these, these, these laws had to change. But, you know, slavery had to end in America, too, but it didn't have to end with a war that killed half a million people within a, a short period of years and destroyed the quality of life for many more millions of people, black and white, for uh, for 100 years. There are prudent people have ways of settling these things without uh, having recourse to revolution. And the principle of civil disobedience, which is I should break good laws because I say I say I have a higher purpose. Well, that is a principle of revolution. It's the principle of uh, of uh, the Marxists. It's the principle of the Jacobins. And the answer, of course, uh, the question I always ask these people is, well, where do you get your justification from? Now, everybody I knew in the civil rights movement, I didn't know a single Christian in the civil rights movement. I certainly wasn't one. And I met people who were black nationalists. I met people who were, I knew the people from Highlander Folk School who were all Marxists. Uh, they, the, the head of the Highlander Folk School hadn't joined the, uh, didn't join <clears throat> the uh, Communist Party because the party said he was more useful outside it. <clears throat> what is their higher law that they're responding to? So when when Catholics today say that the the higher law justifies, for example, sheltering illegal aliens in a church basement, I'm sorry, but they're wrong. And they're wrong both in principle and they're wrong according to the Catholic tradition, which has always enjoined people, uh, enjoined Christians and all, and Catholics especially, to to obey the law whenever it's possible. St. Paul says this. St. Peter says this, uh, Thomas Aquinas says this, Augustine says this. I don't know what, what more proof you need. You can find some Marxist liberation theologian from South America in 1968 saying something different, but the, but the great tradition of the Church says there is, and even many liberal philosophers say no. 
Civil disobedience is an act of rebellion that is never justified except when you're going to war. Now, there is the, what, what is often called the right of conscientious refusal, but that is not your personal conscience. That is the conscience of the religious tradition you're brought up in. So if your religious tradition, say you're a, or you're a traditional Catholic or traditional Orthodox, traditional Protestant, says you may not worship a graven image, you may not take part in a voodoo ceremony, and if a local government says, well, we're having a voodoo ceremony, if you don't take part, we're going to kill you, well, uh, you, you have to refuse. But see, that's not, your in, that's not you individually making up your right, uh, making up your mind that you're going to uh, right all the wrongs of human society. It's the religious tradition in which you were brought up in. And there, uh, there, there seems to be, I think, a clear, well-understood right to refuse to do things that violate the conscience that's been formed by living within a religious tradition. Uh, well... And I and you and I uh, subscribe to that same uh, Catholic religious tradition, Dr. Fleming. So if I could if I could digress a little further into your digression, someone might say, <laughs> uh, "Is Dr. Fleming making the case for being a loyalist during the American Revolution?" Then, if we're so suspicious about revolution in general. Well, that's a you know in, in truth, uh, my family went to Canada, but <laughs> they uh, not because they loved King George but because they were Highland Scots who had taken an oath never to, uh, after the Revolution of 1745, they'd taken an oath never to fight against the king. And in those days, people took things like oaths seriously. They also, uh, in North Carolina, the, uh, the, the people, generally the Scots were disliked in those days, and so there were several reasons to get out. Um, it is, if you look at the statistics, it's maybe one-fourth to one-third of people living, of free people living in America wanted a revolution. And uh, probably slightly more were against it, and a large number couldn't carry the way. And so the revolution was made by a small minority of people who were, I think, quite, prop quite properly and justifiably fed up there's a there's recent sort of books on on uh, trying to understand why we went to war, and the, the 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 best analysis seems to me that the British government was changing the system. The English constitution was changing. It had originally coming out of the Middle Ages. It had allowed for competing power centers: the king, the church, the parliament. And that there was a good deal of jockeying for power and a good deal of sloppiness and messiness and, uh, and the ability to preserve local traditions and peculiarities. Starting in the mid-18th century, they began to form a nation, a centralized nation-state, which did not allow for the kinds of rights which the Americans were demanding. Those rights would have been perfectly well understood 50 to 100 years earlier, or and much less going back into the Middle Ages. Now, the principle was Parliament was supreme. And when Parliament, with the authorization of the king, enacted a statute, it had to be, it was, it was dictatorial. It had to be obeyed. And this was not the tradition in which the Americans had grown up. They had, they felt they had state charters. They had traditions. They had rules. 
And the, it was the English who were changing and not the Americans. The Americans were the conservatives in this respect. Uh, I think uh, I'm not sure the revolution was uh, was by the normal standards, say, set up by St. Thomas, that it was justifiable. But it certainly is understandable how a, uh, a majority of sort of the upper middle class uh, backed it. It's interesting in the South, the Arist- in the North, the aristocracy left New England. They they were not in favor of the revolution. All the the, the so-called best people, they left the revolution to middle class people like the Adamses. In the South, there was a stronger attachment within the colonies to the to the local tradition and local life, and so almost the entire Southern elite in Virginia and North and the Carolinas stayed where they were, and even if they were against the revolution. They led it. There's a famous case of Henry Lawrence, the second president of the Continental Congress. And when the day of the the, the Declaration of Independence was read in Charleston, downtown, uh, Lawrence was wearing black because he had lost a child. And uh, someone said, well, Mr. Lawrence, don't you think you could have taken off mourning, your mourning garb for such a wonderful day? And he said, I mourn less the loss of one child than that the rest of my children will not grow up English. Mm. Yet here's a man who risked everything and, in fact, lost his oldest, his, his great son, uh, John, who was a, was a staff officer, a very gallant officer with uh, George Washington. So these people so loved their country, they went with it because they thought South Carolina or Virginia were their country. They went with their country against their own feelings of being British subjects. And, of course, their grandchildren did the same thing in 1860. Quite literally, their grandchildren. Well, and, and, and obviously, that's, I, I feel like we could do a, an entirely different, different show on that topic, couldn't we? Uh, you know, what, what, what to do uh, at the time of the revolution. And, and as you say, there, there, was, there was a large split. When... Yeah. Yeah, but it was, you see, um, I'm reluctant to talk about the right of revolution, but I do understand that if you really believe that your society is so deeply evil, then it is time either to leave or go into revolution. But if you go into revolution, you then can't whine about it when they arrest you and put you in jail. You know, I've seen a lot of uh, anti-abortion activists. You know, they'll blow up an abortion clinic, and then they'll or, or they'll kill somebody, or they'll engage in really foul, illegal activity, and then they're put in jail. and They'll protest the unfairness. Well, uh, I hate to tell you, but if you're going to be a rebel, <laughs> you have to you 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 have to decide that you will accept that the other the side. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and to, to your point, you have that extreme wing, shall we say, they're going to go blow up abortion clinics, but then there's the other part of the movement that puts a billboard saying like, you know, are you afraid? Uh, we'll help you take care of your child. We'll help you get a job, et cetera. They're, they're, they're accepting, look, the law of the land is something we're opposed to, but we're, we're going to try to deal with it. And uh, going back to the civil rights movement, I was thinking about that, the, uh, the Negro Green Book and the fact that there was an entire, you know, travel guide uh, for people to know where they could stop and sleep for the night or where yeah. they would be allowed to eat or where they could go out for a nightclub. And I thought, you know, rather than there was an entire movement of people who who also wanted their civil rights, but they went about it in an innovative way and said, you know, we're, we're going to travel. 
we're just going to find where we can stop for gas, where we can we, we can get uh, a motel. And, and I, I think a lot of people don't even know the Green Book existed and that, no. uh, that, that, that you could you could have a way of life. I think everyone looks and says, well, you could either protest or you could live under oppression. And people don't realize that not all blacks uh, either subscribe to that or felt that they couldn't live their lives. They went about living their lives. There were other ways to do it. I'll give you a couple of amusing examples. Um, uh, Sam Francis told me this one, that uh, he, he, uh, he knew a, uh, a Greyhound bus driver he met. And uh, in, if you were going from state to state, like if your bus was going up and down from north to south, uh, when, when you enter a certain, like if you entered North Carolina, I think it was, you were supposed to say, make sure that all the black people were in the back, and you would pull a curtain to separate the two compartments. So the bus driver said, you know, this is getting awfully cumbersome. I just ignore it. Hmm. So, so this is the this sort of thing that was were changing very rapidly. So in our culture today where we've got Black Lives Matter and social media and the focus on me, 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 some people are going to say, well, Dr. Fleming, how are you going to prevent me from, from acting on my conscience? How are you going to yeah. respond to that? Well, in the first place, I would want to know what, 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 is the, what is the formation of their conscience. If the formation of their conscience is watching Hollywood movies and listening to national public radio, I would say the best way for us to, 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 uh, to respond is to make sure that we're properly armed and we keep these people away from us. I, I have The way people behave today, the spoiled brat behavior of nearly everybody under 50 in public places, you know, makes you not want to go out to dinner in the United States. You, I never go out to a movie because people start screaming things at the screen. They put their feet up on you. I mean, it's, it's really a barbaric uh, out here in, in, in the heartland. I'm sure there are nice theaters in expensive suburbs where people don't behave that way. But if I can judge by the way people use their cell phones uh, in when you're you're stuck on a plane waiting, there's a period of anxiety and everybody is shouting into their cell phones. If they think that's acceptable behavior, then just about anything goes today. Now, if somebody says he's a Buddhist or a Christian and therefore this entails certain obligations, then you have to look within that tradition. St. Paul says, as you know, in Romans 13, you know, not in vain does the ruler hold the sword. It is not a terror to the, to the innocent and to the just, it is a terror to the wicked. So uh, Paul uh, systematically justifies, and he's talking about the power of the Roman Empire, that the, the empire must be obeyed. Well, gee, did, what was the empire's position on abortion? Well, it was pretty neutral. Uh, a Roman wasn't supposed to have an abortion. Uh, it wasn't fashionable. It was, it was looked down on. And if a wife had one without her husband's permission, <clears throat> you could theoretically demand the death penalty. But, what, but for exposure of children, um, they, there, there was no law preventing you from exposing your child. Now, mostly they didn't die, but from the, the it would seem if the if today's protesters are uh, were were to be were to be brought back in time, they'd be marching up and down saying "Down with Nero" 
or you know, uh, we, we we denying the legitimacy Play, of the imperial matter. government, which prevent which which uh, did not prevent these things. And of course, the 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 what we know Christians did. Peter tells us this in his first epistle, but you get it in some of the great uh, apostolic writings shortly after the death of the apostles, that Christians are to lead normal lives and to set a good example so that people will say, gosh, those Christians are nicer people than the pagans. I wish I could be like them. And by setting this example to your wife and your children and your neighbors, you would convert their conscience. And not you don't run around, and this is explicitly, uh, uh, explicitly rejected in the apostolic writings. You don't make a pest of yourself. You don't walk up and down asking, "Have you been saved?" and deriding people who don't agree with you. And you don't put on the holier than thou attitude of Ted Cruz and his father. It's very, very off-putting to people. You're, they're, these kind of attitudes drive people away from the church. And it's it's uh, and it and it's basically it's we're commanded not to act that way. Uh, I was thinking, how might someone respond to that? But but Dr. Fleming, you're not letting us do anything. Um, <laughs> well, you could lead your own life. You know, you could <laughs> you could study. You could improve your the quality of your life. You could study. You could pray. You're, it's amazing. Even in a prison camp, there is a way to have moral and spiritual freedom. And uh, and of course, life can is not unfairly sometimes compared with a prison or a prison camp. You know, I remember once I I gave a, a talk about education at a Philadelphia Society meeting, and uh, somebody asked me, "Well, what about music? Isn't music a part of education?" I said, "It can be." And a very fine man whom I very much respect, uh, Professor Stephen Tonser from the University of Michigan, uh, st- you know, he he got irritated by this, and he said, "Well." They played. They played Mozart and Beethoven in in the in the death camps, and I said, "Well, Professor Tonser, you know, uh, it was the Jews that were playing the music. I mean, are you saying that they shouldn't have found sought consolation in this sublime music that 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 gave peace to their spirit?" Um, obviously, even under the worst imaginable conditions, people seek beauty and joy and love and uh, and order. And that all of these things are available to us. If we would quit trying to tell other people how to live, we might begin to live ourselves. So, Dr. Fleming's summary, don't be a jerk. Yes, exactly. That, and of course, that my, my book on jerks, if I, I, I have to get back to it. I've written about two-thirds of a book uh, describing and categorizing the, the different varieties of jerk in American life. And I think, I think the, the advice of today's pod can easily be repeated. If we happen to have any friends or family who are calling us saying, hey, do you want to come out to this protest? Or, hey, do you want to go out there and mix it up with these people? <laughs> You might ask the original question, well, why are you doing this? What are you hoping to accomplish? Because I think that's that's ultimately what, what you're pointing back to. What is it that you hope to accomplish by doing this? Um, apart from that, is this something that civilized people do? Yeah. Well, for example, in the specific case of the anti-Trump protesters, a very large number of them are illegal aliens. So 
Um, I get it. You come here, you slip into the country, or even come in legally, and instead of trying to get along and adjust yourself to our political traditions, you wish to revive the political traditions of Mexico, which are revolutionary violence about every 30, 40 years. And so, you know, rioting, lynch mobs, you know, mass murder are the end, killing anybody that you disagree with. This has been the habits of the Mexican Revolution uh, since the late 19th, since the middle of the 19th century. So they, on the one hand, they're, they're denouncing uh, Trump because he says, well, we'll build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. Okay, there are many reasons to disagree with that. But and especially if you were if you were Mexican, all those many Mexican Americans, some Mexican Americans anyway, actually approve of, of uh, Trump's position. But instead of engaging in a political debate, the idea is you fly, you you wave the Mexican flag and set cars on fire, and to show the superiority of the Mexican way of life, which they're bringing towards us. This is not very persuasive, and I suspect that when Mr. Trump uh, sweeps. California. Well, he doesn't have any opposition left, but one of the th- this is a real shot in the arm for his campaign. And so every time people who support a political movement behave like complete idiots, you strengthen the other side. Is there anything else that I failed to cover today that you you want to add before we we finish up today's pod? Well, there are about 100 hours of, uh, worth of things which we could talk about today, but I don't wish to add them. <laughs> All right. So you, you heard that, listeners. You're promised 100 hours at a future date to be determined. And I, and I do exactly. think, start something, we could, uh, I don't know if it would be a From Under the Rebel show, but we, we, we might do a show on either the... Uh, the, the Christian reaction to either the, the war between the states and the Revolutionary War, maybe we could do that within one episode, because I, I think that that's something a lot of people, again, take for granted. Um, if yes. we're growing up to be a good and patriotic American, that, of course, everyone supported the revolution, and, and, and you get this sort of rewritten false history. And as you pointed out, it was actually a lot more complicated than that, um, including getting to Canada. Yes, indeed. Uh, my... Um I, 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 I have the good fortune to have been raised with, uh, in a family with Jacobite sympathies, so uh, I, I was always a little suspicious. It took me to my 40s to, to actually support the, the American Revolution. It was largely from reading people like Jefferson and some of the others. I, I don't say they're entirely right, but I think they had a sufficient case to, to make, that, that we were by then a different people and we were living by an older constitution. Um, you know, what I want to when what we could talk about then, because we're not going to talk about it now, but I'll just lay the statement on the table that the American Revolution brought back the Middle Ages. That is, it brought back a decentralized commonwealth where village people handled their own affairs without having the king's agent standing over them telling them what to do. It was a very creative period down to the 1850s in the United States because it's be precisely be because we recovered our medieval soul. Hmm. Well, hmm. Reader, readers, uh, listeners, be tantalized with that for a future episode. If you have questions about today's episode, please email thomas at fleming.foundation. 
We want to remind you that From Under the Rubble is a production of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to James at Fleming.Foundation. As always, thanks to our Gold and Charter members, who we produce these podcasts for, and who ensure that they can be produced in the first place. I want to thank Dr. Fleming for his time, and until next time, on behalf of the Foundation, make the most of a dark age. <laughs>